<laughs> Where are you? It's my turn to be the one in the wood-paneled room of some in-law far away from the primary studio. Where, where are you exactly? I'm in deepest, darkest Scarborough at the oh. in-laws. <laughs> one thing I can't do, of course, is have the traditional Geeks and Beats martini. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad you're not drinking anything because I had a um, a tequila earlier this afternoon that my wife poured for me. And she <laughs> she doesn't understand uh, dosages when it comes to tequila. I was in Edmonton and I got back uh, early, early this morning. This is being this being Sunday. And uh, at the airport, there is a very good liquor store in the domestic area. And uh, a woman named Jen convinced me to buy this this rare tequila, this 100 proof tequila because it was so smooth she even gave me a, a sample in the store and, <laughs> and so I, I bought it and I was sitting out in the backyard today with the dog and says honey can you get me some some of this new tequila and she did but again you know sweetie you don't four fingers of tequila on a Sunday afternoon not a really good idea and I didn't want to hurt hurt her feelings so I drank it you fell asleep on the grass didn't you <laughs> From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. The stories behind the music will introduce you to the man behind one of the fastest growing YouTube channels today, Polyphonic. Blade Runner 2049. The film isn't raking in the big box office box, but neither did the original. We'll tell you why the music of Vangelis can't be replicated in films today. Google takes a page from Douglas Adams with the Babelfish, or Babelfish if you prefer. If this real-time translator for 40 languages actually works, all you need is a towel for your next pan-galactic adventure. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand when all of a sudden... Is this a test now? Yes. And now... Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. I, I love the colorful clothes you wear and the way the sunlight plays upon her head. Are you familiar with the work of the YouTube sensation Polyphonic? I have been actually watching Polyphonic videos for quite some time. I didn't realize it was the same guy. So I'm well, acquired, I'm well uh, acquainted with this guy's work. It's very good. One of my favorite ones uh, that uh, Noah did was he deconstructed Good Vibrations, calling it the Beach Boys Pop Masterpiece. Originally meant for pet sounds, Good Vibrations quickly grew into something else entirely. Keep in mind this is just a year removed from the Beach Boys releasing Summer Days and Summer Nights. That's a fine album, but it's one full of simple, two-minute rock and roll songs. This is what a lot of pop looked like at the time, with these songs being pumped out in a day or two, usually using just a few recording sessions. But this isn't the case for Good Vibrations, which took the Beach Boys more than a dozen sessions across four different studios. By the time they were done recording, the band had more than 90 hours of material on tape, including a dozen different instruments and even more vocal harmonies. All in all, the budget for the single was between fifty dollars and $75,000, 
which is equivalent to somewhere between three hundred seventy and five hundred fifty thousand dollars today. Yeah, that's a good one. I've seen a couple of documentaries on the making of Good Vibrations, and it's absolutely fascinating what Brian Wilson did with the people he had in those studios in Los Angeles. And uh, Polyphonic breaks it down very, very well. I want to talk to him a little bit about music theory because he's obviously got that uh, that down pretty pretty well. So uh, let's get him in here and let's let's talk about uh, how he actually deconstructs these songs because it's fascinating. Joining us now from Polyphonic, Noah. Good to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I have to ask about your musical training because I've been watching your videos for quite some time, and I'm I'm a drummer um, by training, which means my music theory is absolutely zero. What kind of music theory training do you have? It also means, by the way, that he never got the girls. No. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm uh, a bassist by training, so I also never got the girls. Um, <laughs> but I uh, I started out uh, kind of just your typical uh, piano lessons as a kid, and then did band in high school, and uh, that's kind of where my musical training comes from. And mostly, I mean, I've never really formally trained at a high level. It's mostly just been a lot of interest and a lot of teaching myself and reading a lot of theory and analysis well let's let's start at the very beginning let's let's talk about exactly what it is that you do for people who have not seen any of your youtube videos so what i do is uh a i guess it's kind of an emerging medium you might say called uh video essays and what they are are they're little five to ten minute videos that kind of dissect different topics and it the origin of video essays comes from a lot of film students doing uh digesting movies and tv but i kind of saw that there wasn't many people analyzing music in this way so that's what i started doing so they're little uh five to ten minute videos some look at uh musical analysis some look at lyrical analysis some look at just stories behind bands and it's kind of just uh, a band or a song or something that you like if you want to learn more about it it's just a little quick easily digestible five minute video about a topic well we were talking about good vibrations the beach boys pop masterpiece and how you break that down uh by coda by bridge by episode as you call it but it also gets into things like how flea plays bass yeah absolutely i i kind of like i feel like there's a lot of topics to explore and i could just do song analysis or just do instrument analysis but really there's so much to explore so i like kind of uh picking instead of picking a broad topic like an artist or an album or something like that i like kind of picking an individual thing and focusing on it so instead of doing why the chili peppers are so great i'll do uh how flea plays bass and then from there i'll break that into five or six sections about what it is that he does and how that separates him from other bassists. And if it takes you seven minutes to explain that to the rest of us, how much research must it take? It's, it's a lot of research uh, and a lot of kind of reading over sources and conflicting sources, especially with things like the, with my John Bonham video where I do a lot of analysis of his beats. Various people had, especially on Black Dog, different ideas of kind of what he's doing there uh, some people think he's playing in one time signature. Some people think it's another. So it's a couple hours per video, at least, of just reading through sources, kind of coming up with my narrative and what I think is 
best representative and what I think is most true. So yeah, a couple hours of research per video at least. I was one of the people who looked at that John Bonham video and I, I thought I knew what he was doing, but I got to give it to you. You found elements of his playing that I never realized. And I played that song. I just didn't realize, I just didn't realize what I was doing. This is the thing that really interests me about John Bonham is I don't even know if John Bonham really knew what he was doing. I think for him, it was just <laughs> feel like it is for a lot of drummers. And then you can kind of, I, I always find that really fun when you break down something that is probably just feel and you look at, well, why is this feel so good? You do some very good deconstruction, um, which allows for a certain new level of music appreciation because, you know, we've all heard good vibrations a thousand, ten thousand times. We've all heard Chili Pepper songs a million times. We've heard Led Zeppelin songs to the point where we never need to hear them again. However, if you are able to go into this song and give us a reason to listen to it differently, then the song can be heard with fresh ears and you begin to appreciate it in completely new ways. I'm glad that that's what you're getting from it because that's what I want people to get from it because I've always obviously been a pretty big music nerd and I was just the guy that would kind of spout this knowledge at parties and stuff like that. Whenever a song comes on, I'd be like, oh, well, did you know this about Good Vibrations? And uh, I always think that it, it can really help you appreciate a song on another level. And like you said, a song that you might think is stale or you might even just like I find with a lot of Led Zeppelin songs or even Good Vibrations, like you might think it's just a straightforward rocker. And then as you appreciate the artistry that went into it more, you really each time you listen to the song, it kind of pulls new meaning and you'll notice a little rhythm that you had never noticed before, even though you'd listened to the song a thousand times. Uh, have you done anything on the Yamaha DX7? I have not. I'm actually currently uh, working on something on the DX7. Well, it's, it's on my docket. I haven't started my research yet, but I will actually be doing something on the DX7 in the future. I think there's a, there's a whole bunch of kind of space to explore just with synthesizers alone, there's so many stories. The CS80 is another really cool one. What, what no love for the keytar? We were talking about this last week. <laughs> I, I, I have a love for the keytar. I think that keytars get a bad rap. You know what a keytar is? A keytar is the platypus of musical instruments. It couldn't decide whether it wanted to be a keyboard or a guitar. So you end up with a thing that lays eggs and has a duck bill. That's what it says. The guy is. who plays drums. What? A, a drums are something you hit. There's nothing ambiguous about drums. I think the keytar is just what happens when uh, the keyboardist decides that he thinks he can get girls, too. Ah! Busted! Can, can I make some requests for something that you may want to deconstruct in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I would like you to take a look at Edgar Win Winter's Frankenstein from 1973. That is a quality song. That's a very good idea. Speaking of the keytar...
I saw him and his band play it live on television once, and I, for the life of me, could not figure out all the drum parts because it. But if you see the band play it, you go, oh, of course I couldn't play because they had multiple percussionists playing in this one. And here's how they did it. So please put that one on your list. I'll definitely put that on the list. I, I also agree with Steely Dan, because not only are we talking about the musicianship, but also the studio wizardry that they used in a song like Deacon Blue, for example. There is so much to be told about how the song was recorded, how it was produced, how it was mixed and mastered. The, I mean, you could do actually several on one Steely Dan song where you're talking about the musicianship and the songwriting on one and then on the production and the engineering on the other. And, and I think Steely Dan, another approach, and I've kind of looked at this angle and I kind of just need to work it down into something that's digestible. Just the quality of studio musicians that they used. Like, I feel like Steely Dan's a band that you can kind of, it kind of redefines what a band is. Because yes, Steely Dan was Walter Becker and Donald Fagan, but it's also all of the studio musicians around, even though that's a kind of rotating roster. Like, you could never really look at a given lineup and say that's Steely Dan in the way that you could be like Bonham, P Plant, Page, and uh, and Jones are Led Zeppelin. You can't do that for Steely Dan because, yes, they're Fagin and Becker, but there's so much more than that. What was the coolest thing you have discovered so far? Hmm. I'm, I'm actually working on a video right now uh, that's kind of blowing my mind where it's another – um, musician analysis, but I'm looking at Freddie Mercury singing. Oh, one of the facts that I discovered, there was actually a group of researchers that researched his voice and why it was so incredible. And one of the coolest things is sometimes when Freddie Mercury sings, he has a bit of growl to his voice and they, uh, got somebody, uh, to imitate Freddie Mercury and scanned his throat while he was doing it. And it turns out to get that growl, He's using a part of the throat called ventricular folds, which are actually what Tuvan throat singers use for their kind of unique throat singing music. I've heard a lot of isolated vocals from Freddie Mercury, and you listen to the way he phrases things, his breathing, the decisions that he makes in real time to sing that next line. It is, he is, he was incredible. Goodbye, everybody. 
blows my mind it's like there's not a single word that feels like like it was passed over like it's almost like there's thought and effort beside every single word that he was saying and i mean like the verses of somebody to love or something like that like there's just these ebbs and flows and drama in lines that another singer might sing as just nothing just a passing verse line so i love the work that you've done here but i absolutely hate you (laughs) (laughs) well i'll tell you why because you do these seven minute videos and it's a lot like what i wanted to do with where's my jetpack about all those things we were promised as kids that we never got my problem was if i didn't have a regular deadline with people like alan relying on me to produce the content i never got off the couch how do you find yourself with so many followers and such success what's the motivation here considering i've been doing it for three months it's uh kind of insane to me um i think i think the biggest thing is uh i i put a lot of thought and a lot of effort into my stuff and the other thing that i've learned and i learned from my journalism background is i am very good at making myself meet deadlines and i release the videos (laughs) every second Thursday and occasionally bonus ones, but continue to release them regularly. And I think the other thing too is like anyone that goes big, it's a bit of luck. Like I think the bottom video really uh, tapped into a, uh, uh, tapped into a vein that video. I, when I released it, I had 200 subscribers and I was hoping that uh, that video might hit a thousand views and Three months later, it's at 2 million views. It hit 2 million last night. So I think that that kind of helped me a lot. I tapped into a vein that a lot of people like. And the other thing, too, is I was always prepared and had infrastructure so that if something did go big, I had other quality videos that people could watch. I had a Twitter feed. I had stuff like that. I kind of fake it till you make it, they say. Like, from the beginning, I was treating this as if I had... A million subscribers um, and I still treat it now that I'm at all, closing in on 100,000 subscribers I don't treat it any differently than I did from day one have to ask this are you making any money I'm I'm starting to make money I've got some sponsorship deals rolling in Do you make money off the, the ads that run in advance of it uh yeah I make some money but it's kind of it's it's not enough to pay the bills um, but uh, especially because a lot of my videos uh, there's kind of copyright issues, even though I can use this stuff under fair use. Uh, the YouTube's algorithm kind of flags down my videos sometimes, and there's a whole dispute process there because I'm using song clips. But yeah, I've got I've got some cash flow from there. I'm starting to do some sponsorship deals, and I've got a Patreon where I have some wonderful patrons that I need to give a shout out to because anybody who 
sent their money for me to to pay me to do this thing that I love to do is really cool. <laughs> We've got the Patreon as well, so if you're already dialed in with us at Patreon, make sure you check out what Noah's working on there at Paul the Phonic. Noah, great having you with us. All the best. All right. Thanks so much for having me on. You'll find Noah on YouTube. Search for Polyphonic. Sounds good. Have a good one. See ya. Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. Oh, by the way, how was your respiratory infection? Oh, it's coming along quite nicely. Thank you very much. I'm now at the hacking up a lung phase. Okay, just checking. Which was great when I went to see the new Blade Runner movie. Every leap of civilization was built off the back of slaves. Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. I had the luck, and he has the key. I think I found him. That's not possible. If this gets out, we've bought ourselves a war. Let's talk about the new Blade Runner movie because I have not seen it. I've been away and I haven't had an opportunity to go anywhere near a theater. So I'm looking at the box office returns from the weekend and they're not great. Okay, you know what? I have 35 some odd million dollars is what they figure it's going to be, which is not a surprise because the original one in 1982 also brought in only 33 million. Granted, that was 84 million in today's dollars if you want to take uh, the cost of living into consideration. This one cost 150 million dollars to make. They'll make their money back, maybe not right away. Uh, I think part of the problem is that it's got a 163-minute running time. Wifey, when I said to her, hey, you want to go see that new Blade Runner movie? She jumped at it. Absolutely. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. My wife wants to go see a science fiction film. And then a colleague of mine pointed out, no, 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 no. Your wife wants to go see a Ryan Gosling film. Oh, right, yes. <laughs> and he is beautiful, as is his virtual girlfriend, Joy, played by Anna de Armas from Cuba. And um, it's a, it's... An amazing film, so long as you go into it knowing that it is going to be slow and plodding. Just sit back, relax, don't eat all the popcorn at once, you're going to enjoy the film. It didn't, though, have the same musical gravitas as the original did, thanks to Vangelis. Yeah. Now, you have to understand that that Vangelis soundtrack for the original Blade Runner was groundbreaking in its day. Now, he had just come off winning an Academy Award for Chariots of Fire. He was a, he's a Greek composer. He was working in the UK, and synthesizers were not being used the way Vangelis had used them for the for both Chariots of Fire and the original Blade Runner. He came from the European school of synthesizer composition that had Giorgio Moroder involved, uh, can and crowd rock bands, Craftwork, uh, and, and a variety of others. So when we heard the, the soundtrack to 
the original Blade Runner, it was weird and spooky, and there were all these sounds that we had never, ever heard before because the technology was so new. The keyboards were so new, and a guy like Vangelis was using them in ways that nobody had ever thought of using them before. That soundtrack became hugely influential um, over a very long period of time. It didn't wasn't in, instantly um, influential, but uh, people like Gary Newman and David Bowie and a bunch of others listened to it and goes, "Hmm, there's there's something that we can that we can do with this." Um, so it doesn't surprise me that now, however many years later, thirty five years later, that. How are you going to have a soundtrack that is as influential, as groundbreaking, as unique as the original when so much time has passed and this technology is no longer new? I think that that basically sums it up. We went into this film expecting to have that same sort of Vangelis feel. And to the credit uh, of Vilniev, he didn't want that sort of thing, it didn't seem. It didn't sound like they were trying to replicate it, although there are a couple of scenes that are reminiscent of the original 82 version of the spinner cars moving across the landscape towards the city of Los Angeles, and you see uh, the the bleakness, and you hear that Vangelis-esque tone to it, but it certainly does sort of make it its own. The other thing that concerned me, that... I was really looking forward to, not as as a replica of the original film, not as a replicant of the original film, uh, but there was no real Rutger Hauer fight to the death with a beautiful soliloquy in the rain. I kind of like that, though. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. fight scenes. Uh, There was some interesting dialogue, but there was never a a pinnacle moment in this particular film, unlike the original. Also unlike the original, right out of the gate, we know Ryan Gosling is a replicant, but by the end of this film, we still don't really know whether or not Harrison Ford's character, Deckard, is a replicant. Still, huh? Still. Do not give away anything, because... Villeneuve was really, really insistent that in any of the reviews that everybody stopped short of even plot summaries because he doesn't want anybody to be doesn't want to be spoiled. I watched the last trailer and the last trailer makes it look like the rise of the replicants. They are coming to not only take over the city of Los Angeles, but the world. And at the end of the film, as the scene pulls back from uh, the last shot of Ryan Gosling, you think, 
well, wait a minute. What happened to them taking over? What's going on here? And, and, and you get the impression that they were leaving it open for a, a, a sequel to the sequel. But I'm not waiting 35 more years for it. That's for sure. Is it a sequel in the sense that it takes what we saw in 1982 and advance the stories and themes therein? I wouldn't call it a sequel as in the last one was so damn good. Let's make another buddy cop movie kind of way that Hollywood makes sequels. But uh, it does draw on everything that came before it, uh, including some of uh, there are there is a recurring character uh, that I'm not going to share with you that has a very brief lifespan in the film. Okay. So it is definitely worth seeing. I don't know if you're going to spend the money in the theater to see it, uh, because you're going to want to hit pause, and you're going to want to get up at some point and go pee. If you choose to see this in the film, there is an app for that that tells you the perfect time in every single movie to excuse yourself to the laugh. Really? It's called Run Pee. No kidding. Kid you not. All right. Well, great. So there's going to be a lot of people in theater lighting up their smartphones, annoying everybody else, and then all getting up en masse to go to the bathroom. No, no, no. It doesn't light up. That's the beauty about it is it'll just go and it'll buzz you to let you know so that the screen doesn't light up. Also, by the way, I, I put my Apple Watch on the new theater mode so that if I lifted my hand up to get some popcorn, it didn't light up the room. Yeah, I've done that, too. That's good. Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. Google's Pixel Buds can translate 40 languages at geeksandbeats.com. Shane Alexander reports on what is essentially the Douglas Adams Babel fish. Yeah, or the Star Trek Universal Translator. There was another company earlier this year, maybe late last year, that had come up with something similar. And I remember seeing the demos going, my God, I have to have this, especially when I travel. Uh, but, but apparently Google has taken it to a new level. They have. To translate, as uh, Shane points out, you uh, hold down your right earbud and say, help me speak whatever one of those 40 languages is. This was all part of Geeks and Beats live on location. Our executive producer, Vanessa Azoli, was at the big unveiling of all the new Google toys. And she says that the earbuds, that was the neatest part of it. They did a demonstration on stage between an English speaking presenter and a Swedish presenter. Absolutely unreal. I, I can imagine. Now, I, I do a lot of traveling into foreign lands. I would love for this to be able to help me with, with Chinese. I would love for it to be able to help me with Arabic uh, and, and French and Spanish. Those are the four that I, you know, I feel so left out when I'm hearing conversations or people want to talk to me that, you know, I, I would love, I'm, I'm in. What can I say? It's your very own babblefish. Let me get a plug in here for something that I'm doing this weekend. It's uh, an event called TAVES, T-A-V-E-S. It's happening at the Toronto Congress Center. It is Canada's largest audio and consumer electronics show. Uh, you really got to come because there's all kinds of gadgetry there. I'm doing this with my music technology meetup people, musictechnology.ca. And uh, I'm, I'm going to be on a couple of panels. I think I'm moderating something, too. So if, uh, you know, if you want to come, I'll get you in. Uh, see, you try to drag me to these things all the time. You know what I'm doing next Saturday? What? I am rebuilding a vintage 1960s replica Eames lounge chair. Ooh. Remind me to send you the um, story about how replica art chairs are a multi-billion, well, 
multi-billion dollar fraud business? Well, I'll tell you this. An actual Eames from the 1950s is about $9,000 today. Herman Miller sells them brand new. But brand no, brand brand new. I looked at one, uh, $6,500. If you are willing to get a replica, the high-end replicas are $1,600, and even the crappy replicas, like the one I bought, is $1,200. I got it on Kijiji for $400, and uh, someone in the 80s had reupholstered it in this revolting brown, looks like uh, a topographical map of Nebraska, Uh, and with that in mind, I'm tearing that all apart. The problem is, is that I think for the last 30 years, a cat has considered it its home, and that That's what triggered that big chest infection I had. So this past weekend, I was out there working on it, wearing an asbestos-grade... Hazmat? Not not a hazmat suit, but close. The the respirator that you would use if you were tearing down an old home that had asbestos in it, because I just couldn't risk any more. Okay, if you come down with mesothelioma, we, we know why. Exactly. Because I'm building this Eames chair into a VR flight seat. Of course you are. I'm mounting the throttle and the joysticks on the arms in such a fashion that when um, you remove them, because I'm going to make them removable, if you came into my family room, you would have no idea that's a VR flight seat seat. It just would look like a regular Eames chair. Fantastic. And, and, and... I bought the amplifiers and the bass shakers so that when you launch your spaceship in Elite Dangerous, you feel the rumble. You must have had one deprived childhood. My wife's pretty tolerant. She has to be. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.